0: Scuba Obsessed is the weekly podcast. Where we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode four fifty one is recorded live, June eleventh, twenty twenty. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Chilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where, I, I don't know, this is about the perfect weather, I think, if you can dodge the uh, the storms and the occasional crazy wind. This is this is what I live for. This is perfect. Join me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac?
1: I'm doing very well, and we did survive the uh, three squalls we had yesterday at 6 o'clock, or at least local.
0: Is there like a squall warning? Because I didn't realize that there were going to be squalls.
1: Well, my my, we were eating supper, and my daughter had a really funny look on her face and cracked her neck. Turned around, and it's like, there's a freaking wall out there coming at us. You could not <laughs> see the houses. And it was just, when it came, everything behind it was obscured. Wow. And then it hit, and then as the trees started breaking apart in my neighbor's yard, and the pieces flung in my yard, <laughs> it's like, Damn, that's uh interesting and fast. And then we had three repeats, well, two repeats within an hour.
0: Yeah, because we had the same thing, you know, we're we're a little bit more inland from where you're at. And we had that first one come through and then the sun completely came out. And I was thinking, Well, I thought we were supposed to have more than this. And I wasn't paying attention and then I look out again and it you know, it repeated. And, yeah, and I, I take
1: that back, that wasn't yesterday, but that was Tuesday when we were having uh Thankful tuesday dive ah and that way I, when I gave a report down to kevin and he says well it's up south of him which was us mm-hmm. and uh they got a bit diluted with the rain no lightning uh so they did get a dive in but we got wet enough up here too
0: yeah so it just kind of comes with this time of year but the yeah. temperature wise it's not been too bad a little bit of humidity starting to go but From what I hear, the coronavirus doesn't like humidity, so bring it on. I'd like to thank everybody who's joining us in the chat room today. Uh, We have uh, Dave and Eric and Karen who have joined us. Thank you very much. And if you're enjoying the show and you want to listen live, uh, perfect to do. We have a Discord channel. We record live on Thursdays. It's Thursday. Yeah, Thursday at 9.30 p.m., give or take any distractions that I have, and we get going.
1: Yeah, Derek had checked in earlier, too.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I had everything loaded real early. I had come online, had all the articles set up, preloaded them, did an audio check. I have to apologize to everybody. The audio of the last two episodes has been odd, and I'm hoping I fixed it. But I swear I've done this test before, and it was fine. Uh, what's happening is it's almost like my system is changing microphones. I've got a nice studio mic. And then I've got just a plain old laptop mic and somehow Craig recorded on the laptop mic. So, you know, it sounds like your typical zoom call. Hmm. So, but you sound, you sounded good except for, uh, you had a case of the chipmunks and the demons where, uh, Comcast must've been having some fits or something.
1: Well, I do know the internet has been a little weird the last, uh, three days times we lost it for up to an hour and a half. Ah, uh, it's quite interesting. Nowadays, I wonder what the people do, kids and working, that suddenly mm-hmm. you don't have internet access for an hour and a half. People go nuts because <laughs> that, your TV went off too. Yeah. So it's like, oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? Why books are really a good substitute.
0: Yeah. Those, those, uh, cellulose, hard, hard storage information. How quaint. <laughs> So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. First article we have up is a follow-up from uh, our uh, Golden Ray shipwreck out there off the East Coast. They said that all 16 of the hulking lift lugs are now in place on the exposed sar- starboard side of the shipwreck. Uh, the Golden Ray, which is 656-foot-long freighter foundered in the St. Simmons Sound, has been there for eight months. This according to U.S. Coast Guard John Miller. Spokesman for the Unified Command. The crews have already reached a halfway point on installation of the encompassing expanse of mesh netting, the primary defense and the environment protection barrier that will surround the ship. Now, that netting, I imagine, is only going to capture steel pieces. You know, any oil or smaller stuff seems like it would just go right on through it. Uh, they said, well, it's too early for an official countdown. The arrival of the 10,000 crane barge is almost within sight now. Uh, the VB-10,000 is a dual-hulled barge crane whose center arch stands higher than the, diver's, the driver's view atop the, the Sydney Lanier Bridge, which doesn't mean anything to me. Bad weather or other holdups notwithstanding, the Texas-based steel-girded Leviathan could arrive in St. Simon Sounds as, uh, before July 4th. How is that almost within sight? July 4th? I mean, that's like three weeks away. I Yeah, not too long. When I'm, when I think within sight, meaning visually, <laughs> physically, or literally not, uh, a relatively short period of time, uh, that, uh, that crane is, uh, 250 feet high vertical clearance is, uh, oh, uh, the, the bridge that, that it needs to go through. The port is 185 feet at the center. Well, how are they doing that? Must be they just bring it down or something. Uh, it's being pulled by two tugboats. It's about two weeks to get there, should begin its journey sometime in the middle of the month, which is June. So So they're on their way. I mean they the, the article goes into a little bit of detail, but uh just to kind of keep everybody up to speed on it.
1: Well, you know how and, divers always like to lick a chain and in the old days they like to collect it. You see the article there the steel links are three inches in diameter and weigh eighty pound each. Each link. Each link. Yeah. That's a lot of lift bags. (laughs)
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, you figure the chain itself is 400 feet long, and if it's three inches in diameter, do the math on three inches, that's what?
0: Yeah.
1: Four times that, so you're talking, what, eight, 16, 320 per foot pounds times 400? I ain't got enough lift bags in the state of Michigan. No.
0: (laughs) There are some ships that can't that uh, would sink under that.
1: I would think a heck of a lot of them.
0: Yep. Yeah, I'm glad that's not the anchor chain on a boat I got to pull up. Well, I
1: think the biggest feature on this one here is going to be what is going to be the dB, the noise level on shore. Twenty-four hour continuous cutting, and they say it's going to be loud. So I'm really curious how that is.
0: What you need to do is uh, do a. is to do a rock concert festival on the beach that goes simultaneously 24 hours a day. So everybody forgets about the grinding noise. They just complain about the rock concert.
1: Yeah, but what I want to do is go down there and have my hearing aid stand afterward.
0: <laughs> and I'm going to make a killing. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the the, the, OSHA-approved units. Because, yeah, a little noisy. Great Lake Waters in May is going to set a record. The highest water in 200, oh, no, 200. 102 years as possible by July. Three Great Lakes and St. Clair River set record high water levels in May. The forecast for the water rising to midsummer shows an all-time high water mark possibly since good records began 102 years ago. Lake Michigan and Lake Huron topped the previous May water level record by four inches. This extra water represented 3.2 trillion gallons of the Lake Michigan-Huron never had in the month of May. And then there's a chart which you can't see, but you would be able to see if you were looking at it, and according to the chart, they said that May was higher, which represents the previous high-water mark.
1: Well, you figure, what was it, three, four, five years ago, they were saying, oh, my God, it's going down the water. We're losing it. Oh, yeah. It. And now yeah. the whole lake level for Lake Erie is up a foot. And for the two of the Great Lakes in our area, they're up almost three.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's been crazy. Which is easy to when you go
1: downtown and see the flooding down in Benton Harbor. And uh, Fisherman's Park, for example, is basically underwater. Mm-hmm. And the nice part is you don't have to step off the uh, the edge now and drop down a couple of feet. The water level is about six inches below the top of the, the metal. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to get in and out now.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll talk about a little bit later in the show, the the dive we had on the weekend. But uh, we went out of South Haven and you can't, I, I was lost. I They had to, we had to go back roads to get to the boat ramp and the road before you get to the marina and the, the boat ramps is actually flooded. I swear you could launch right there in the road. Probably can. Said all the great lakes are at normal seasonal rise and usual peak water levels are reached around July. Lake Michigan and Huron expected to continue to rise in June and July. Uh, And then on a chart, they have a green dash, which represents the most likely watermark in the next six months. If you look at a blue dash line, that's a long-term historical average water cycle. You see the green dash forecast, ex- exactly the normal rise and fall. In other words, the center of the forecast will work of Mother Nature gives us average weather. The red dashed line cone is the range of possible outcomes. If Lake Michigan and Huron actually track at the top end of the red dashed line, July and or August could have the highest water level recorded back to the beginning of the records in 1918, is there any other? Only,
1: it's only a hundred years. I really, don't right. know what this has been over the last eight thousand years.
0: Yeah. Well, I've got charts, both uh, commercial and handmade, for local some local rivers. Could you use something like that to get an idea? I mean, because at the time, I'm assuming the chart guy just like drew it how he saw it. I wonder if you could somehow. I guess it would depend on the topography and the river because rivers change and move, but I've got some charts back into the 1800s. So are they just saying they don't trust them? I mean, 1918 really isn't, I mean, relatively speaking, that's not that long ago. We were fairly industrialized. Yeah. So why they, you can't tell me that people weren't recording it, that you didn't have lighthouse keepers or businesses that cared about it. We've got bridges older than that, wouldn't we? Yeah, that's
1: what I was going to say. You were, you're correct on that. I mean, those who operate so somebody, bridges, if you had barges, uh, what are the tributaries feeding it? Rivers right. are high tributaries, therefore, your traffic volume, the boats. And, and we stuff.
0: have photography. So somebody could take, look at some known landmarks, look at photos and, and kind of determine within a couple inches what the water level was at that time of that photo being taken. So, That'd be, that could be an interesting project for somebody, not me. I'm not volunteering, but somebody else (laughs) else could, can do that. Uh, and then here's an article out of inews.co.uk. North Sea feels like an ejected, neglected, 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 back garden, poisoned purpose, purposes, (laughs) poisoned porpoises are just one casualty of toxic pollution in the ocean zoologist finds that the porpoise was ground down by the perils of everyday ocean life. Autopsy of the harbor porpoise found in North Sea lays bare the destruction humanity is wrecking on the oceans, according to leading oceanographers. A toxic cocktail of household agricultural industrial chemicals, tiny plastic fragments, climate change, overfishing made the sea a hellish place to live, according to George McGavin, a zoologist at Oxford University. The dead porpoise washed up on the Dutch coast near Ultrich, one of the many found every year on beaches abutting in our sea. Dr. McGavin was distraught by what he found, describing it as a symbol of what's wrong with our oceans. He said, This member of the species is so beloved the public, was assaulted on numerous fronts, becoming so warmed down that she lost the will to live. And so she died at just four years of age when harbor porpoises like her would historically have been expected to reach 14. I would hate to be a porpoise in the North Sea. It has been filled with poison, Dr. McGavin told I. She was obviously very sick. She was underweight. She hadn't eaten for three days. Her organs were full of worms. The most poignant thing for me was that she had a tiny embryo inside her. Here's an animal that has been around for 30 to 40 million years, super adapted to its environment in a way we aren't, but she was made ill by a cocktail of toxic, toxic compounds, noise, propellers, and fishing nets. He added, "Toxic compounds from plastic, household, industrial chemicals are working their way up the food chain to the porpoises on top. So they're eating them. Huge amounts of stuff and becoming full of poisons, making them very, very ill. Climate change also playing a key role in deteriorating health of the marine species such as harbor porpoises," said Helen Sierzyski, an oceanographer at the University of College London who worked alongside Dr. McGavin. The porpoise is an indicator of the things we can't see. They're getting all these stresses. It's not one thing that kills them. They are all these things in the environment going wrong. There are all our eyes in the world we can't see. We live through stuff we get to hide from. Together, the invisible destruction beneath the waves after decades of oil and gas exploration, there are also visible signs. Humanity's imprint in the North Sea, says Dr. Chertsky. I was surprised how much of the stuff there is. We never, out of sight of something human-created at any point, and we did a quite large trek around the North Sea, she said. There are oil rigs, gas rigs, ships everywhere, random posts, sticking the oceans, perhaps a huge weather stations on them. Okay. And there's another section. But I would like to see some information, some specifics. I mean, just be I mean, was there some toxic level in there? So what reading between the lines are saying is that they couldn't find one cause, so they're blaming all causes. It's so a collection. Mean, yeah.
1: Any one item, if you saw it, one and even a wild animal will try to avoid that aspect. But if you have a lot of little ones, they
0: mm-hmm. sneak
1: up on you basically.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is just distilled down, but I would like to have, you know, had some examples. You know, could she have, yeah, because they said that there were some poisons. I mean, they're talking about stresses, which stresses, you know, anybody who's done anything with aquariums understands that it doesn't take much. You know, you can stress a, a fish out, both in water quality and in environment, but I would like to see a little bit of data to back up some of these. I mean, the the photo they show is in an MRI, so I'm assuming they found something in the MRI that backed up also what they were saying, but this article, unfortunately, doesn't tell us Well, the autopsy
1: also showed you the same item. You've been able to see the cavity to the organs, what was in the stomach cavity, so
0: Did did you get a a chance to watch that? No, I did not. It says the ocean autopsy secret story of our seas is due to air on the BBC Fora on the 9 p.m. on Monday, which is for World Ocean Days, which was on June 8th. So we won't see it in the U.S. probably until it hits BBC America or Discovery Channel picks it up. So we're, we're probably three to six months away from seeing that one.
1: And though we are people who are polluting it, again, it's people. And, you know, we need stuff to eat and to survive. The more people, the more stuff we use. And we're really not into the mode yet of thinking about the environment. I mean, as long as we still got food, still got water, we're kicking around, increasing the population, by millions. So maybe this co-virus is the one supposed to help thin out the herd.
0: Well, <laughs> we could do a conspiracy episode. I mean, I'm... There was a uh, Dan Brown book uh, that was on that and they actually made that one into a movie. Yep. Yeah. Oh, somebody in the chat room will probably tell us what that movie was, but Tom Hanks is in it. Yeah. Uh, next one is Iowa teen saves a life during the first solo scuba dive. And I apologize to chat room. Some of these were covering. I didn't get in the show notes. Uh, the Iowa teenager first solo dive was a lot more exciting than they anticipated Calvin, Grossvener became certified last November, but only got out by himself the first time this past weekend and quickly noticed a huge problem. The adult partner he had gone diving with was seizing underwater just minutes into the dive. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done, he told KTIV of the rescue, which took place in Okaboji, Iowa. The other diver had a lot of experience initially wanted to dive by himself, according to the report. Once I realized he wasn't okay, I had two things I wanted to do. I wanted to make sure, one, that he was breathing, and two, I wanted to get him back to shore. I had nothing else in my mind but to get him back to shore and make sure he was breathing. Uh, Grosvenor uh, said he had expected to learn a bit from a more experienced diver who apparently was one certification away from being a master diver. Arnold's Park Okaboji Underwater Search and Rescue Dive Captain Mark Peterson told KTIV that the training both Grosvenor and his partner helped them. You have to be trained, dive with a buddy, have good equipment, know your equipment. I think that's what happened with both of these gentlemen. They were both trained, and the outcome we had was just because of good training. So good for him.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Uh, and
1: and being that young, too, keeping his mind focused on the job.
0: Yeah. because uh, I mean, I was quite a bit more mature than he was on my first dive. And you know, it, it really takes you a while, at least for me to, to get to that comfortable point where I felt like I was really valuable as a dive buddy to somebody else. Cause that those first dozen or so dives, you're just trying to keep track of everything. It just seems like you've got so many bits and pieces to worry about. But for somebody that young on this first dive, uh, I and mean, that's the training. I mean, that's as bad training. Training helps you spend a little bit less effort to think. And so you can do more time doing. This one, did we talk about the Titanic where they had the uh, where they're going to retrieve the radio?
1: Uh, yes, the Marconi one or whatever. Yes, yeah. Well, we had mentioned it last week. Is this an update on that?
0: Well, this is an update. They have uh, uh, retrieving the Titanic's radio would disturb the wreck and disrespect hundreds who died. The U.S. argues the U.S. government will pardon me.
1: I'm looking for that, I can't. I got it. Never mind. Sorry about
0: that. Okay. Yeah, no problem. Uh, The U.S. government will try to stop a company's planned salvage mission to retrieve the Titanic's wireless telegraph machine. In a legal challenge filed before a federal judge in Virginia late Monday, U.S. attorney argued the expedition would break federal law and a pact with Britain to leave the iconic shipwreck undisturbed. The expedition is expected to begin at the end of August. Atlanta-based salvage firm RMS Titanic, Inc. said it would exhibit the telegraph while telling the stories of the operators who broadcast the sinking ship's distress calls. The company plans to recover the radio equipment from the deckhouse near the Titanic's grand staircase. The mission could require an underwater vehicle to cut into a rapidly deteriorating roof of the submersible, is oh, if the submersible is unable to, to slip through the skylight. U.S. attorneys argue the company can't do that. They say federal law requires the firm to get authorization from the Secretary of Commerce before conducting salvage ex- expedition that would physically alter or disturb the wreck. The agreement of the United Kingdom, they add, regulates entry in the hull sections to prevent disturbances to the hull and other artifacts and any human remains. The international agreement calls for the Titanic to be recognized as a memorial to those men, women, and children who perished and whose remains should be given appropriate respect. The government filing states, Titanic was traveling from England to New York when it struck an iceberg and sank in 1912, killing... All but 700 of the 2,208 passengers and crew distress calls to other ships were made by the McCarney Mar- Marconi wireless telegraph machine, are credited with helping save hundreds of people in lifeboats. The U.S. filed its arguments in the same federal judge who ruled last month that the salvage firm could dive nearly two and a half miles to recover the telegraph equipment. Titanic wreck site sits in the floor of the North Atlantic, about 400 miles off of Newfoundland, Canada. In May, U.S. District Judge Rebecca Beach Smith agreed with the salvaging firm that the telegraph is historically important could soon disappear the rapidly decaying wreck. Smith wrote that recovering the telegraph would contribute to preserving the legacy of the ship and its passengers. NOAA represents a public interest in the shipwreck. NOAA has operated for years as a friend of the court, now seeking to be a party to the salvage case. NOAA's legal challenge escalates the simmering debate over who can approve the salvage mission to the world's most famous shipwreck. The federal agency argues that federal laws and international agreements should apply to the wreck. The salvage firm disagrees, claiming hundreds of years maritime law gives the authority to the Court of Norfolk. NOAA seeks to jettison the law of the sea developed over centuries, the company argued in the legal filing earlier this year. Uh, George Glenn, a law professor who teaches admiralty law at the University of Virginia, said the case is likely far from over depending on how Judge Smith rules on Noah's status as the party to the case. Ruth and Glenn said the U.S. government could still try to bring the case to the 4th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. The appeals court in Richmond has taken an interest in the case involving nations' agreements with foreign countries as well as cases concerning disturbance of grave sites, he said. I would be surprised if 4th Circuit Court doesn't pay some attention to what the United States says. Uh, Ruth, Ruth or Glenn also said that grain the firm's current request could open the door to further requests to salvage inside the hull. The solvers have a lot of money tied up in the wreck. Their natural incentive is to try to recover as many artifacts as they ethically can.
1: Everybody knows the ship is deteriorating at a very rapid rate. And what, were, what was the whole purpose? It's, you know, people died on it? Absolutely. But <laughs> isn't recovering items when you still got a chance better than having it collapse upon itself?
0: I, I'm I'm going to make a lot of people mad, but uh, I am not a big one on uh, sites as being treated as memorials or grave sites. I'm not a big one because I, I look at the end game uh, and everything could be a grave site at one point in time. So it seems to be of popular opinion. Is it only a grave site or memorial uh, until... You know, is it 100 years? Is it 500 years? Is it a thousand years? Is it when it can sell tickets to a movie or a show? I mean, I. Well, that's well what,
1: memorials don't mean anything anymore. I mean, look how many memorials you've torn down from just the Civil War. You're oh, yeah, redoing but, history.
0: The oh, same thing. Yeah. What are you trying to preserve? But, are you
1: altering history?
0: Well, they're on the wrong side of history, of course. That's why you, you tear them down.
1: Well, to the one goes <laughs> on to <laughs>
0: So, yeah, it's. Uh, I thought Britain also had a say so in this well i th- I think that's what the case is that uh this company has owns the rights to the wreck that yeah. they've they they secured the salvage rights, so law to see they're going to do stuff well the u s and Great Britain, which we've seen this with other wrecks, have signed a treaty which kind of dictates to how those co- what those countries want to see done with the wreck. And that's what um, Noah is going under is saying that they're party to this agreement and that it's really a treaty agreement, not a law of the sea agreement. So that's, what's going to be argued. They're going to argue over what is the jurisdiction because this judge has said, based on the salvage laws uh, and, you know, any restrictions that are in place, the fact that retrieving the, the Marconi is better preserved by grabbing it and preserving it than by leaving it down there to disintegrate.
1: I I just wish they had left Admiralty Law alone and put the solvers. You got it, it's yours. It's like um, if and when they ever find the ship up in Lake uh, Michigan, you know the one Mm -hmm. I'm talking about, the one that's found every couple of years. The griffin? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's already been given. I said, well, when it's found, it's automatically Francis. I still do not understand that logic whatsoever.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the whole military thing yeah, that got mixed, missed in, mixed into it, and I'm, I'm. We need to do is get a uh, somebody who's an expert, you know, a legal person who understands this, and just start posing a whole bunch of questions to the point to where they start crying and never want to be in the show again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you bad, you bad. Well, I because there's just so many things that. You know, anybody I talk to in the law, you know, they get to that one point and they go, well, that that's just kind of how it is. You know, it's, it's not right. It's not wrong. It's just what it is. So, yeah, like, like they said in the article, I don't think this one's done. And I don't think either way that it comes out that they're done. So this is just climbing it up. It's like, you know, luckily we've got a government agency who's going to spend all our money on doing what they want to do anyway. So they'll consume all that money. And then you've got a private company, which does have some incentive to it. And uh, so they must have enough money to go and do this. Because But the game here that the government's playing is that eventually they'll get tired and go away. And then here we go. You know, that Detroit River over there to Windsor, it doesn't look that far, does it? Suspected underwater drug smuggler runs from feds found floating in Detroit River with 265 pounds of marijuana. Canadian man who was caught with almost $100,000 and then ran from federal authorities was found unconscious in the Detroit River while hauling almost 300 pounds of marijuana. Glenn, was it Masso, uh 49 of Windsor, Canada, Ontario, Canada, was first arrested early in May according to probable cause. He was stopped while driving a U-Haul in St. Clair County on May 10th. During the stop, deputies reported finding a large plastic bag with $97,060 in cash. He said he didn't know who it belonged to and it was <laughs> taken to the county jail. Yeah, <laughs> I... Uh, well, you hauled. Know, U-Haul, don't they have that? Isn't that like uh, ticket money? You know, if you, there's a little thing, you know, in trouble, lift this hatch. And uh, once there, he had legally entered the U.S. from Canada. He said he uh, directs a smuggling operation that moves money and drugs between the two countries. He also admitted to moving marijuana, cocaine, and cash, cash roughly seven times. According to the affidavit, he said he was scouting a location to smuggle the currency he had when he was stopped. He said he gave GPS coordinates to someone in Canada who crosses the Detroit River with a submersible watercraft. He said he would then send the drugs or currency back with his associates across the river. He also said that one of his submersible crafts was seized by Border Patrol on April 23rd on Zug Island. During the interview, he gave authorities permission to search his two cell phones, which resulted in conversations with different people regarding GPS coordinates in the shoreline. The indictment, uh, says the, these locations are known popular maritime smuggling locations. He's expected to receive more narcotics. That he was being paid to smuggle in the Canada from the U.S., but the drugs were never delivered. Uh, Masso was eventually released and told police he would state the Baymont Hotel in Flat Rocks as they investigated. They just, he's, you know, he's <laughs>
1: not a very smart guy. Why would he ever <laughs> give them permission to go through his phone without a warrant? Uh, well, and by the way, you know this is not current. Meaning this happens all the time. Oh, yeah. The last time that we went up to um, the same area, and we know about this back and forth under there with your scooters, we had the the Federales <laughs> come down to talk to us to see what we were doing.
0: Oh, gosh. The prankster in me just sees all sorts of opportunity here.
1: I mean, we had, you know, we had the toy box up. We had all sorts of stuff. So he just me wandered down, uh, saw how we were doing, what were we looking for finding anything
0: I, i'm i'm thinking one of those uh you know those those vacuum sealers you use for freezers and just take <laughs> some grass clippings and dog and uh, horse poop and just shrink those things up <laughs> uh, <laughs> here you go yeah you caught me red-handed you know <laughs> as they have to cut each one open <laughs> oh okay well he was so He must have been so friendly that they released him. He was eventually told police he would stay at the Baymont. He told police where he was staying. Oh yeah, I'm just going to be here at Baymont and Flat Rock as they investigated on the 21st. So that was uh, yeah, 21st. He he would uh, he he advised a Homeland Security agent that he would have information about multiple kilogram shipment of methamphetamine arriving Detroit the next day at 6 a.m. on May 22nd. He was spotted, leaving the hotel hotel employees said he contacted them and asked them to clean his room, pack his belongings as he would be traveling for an emergency funeral and would not return for several days the same day he also stopped his regular contact with homeland security agents when they reached out to the hotel. the staff said the property were concerned con, were considered abandoned and turned it all over to the federal agents. While it only takes a day to an hour's to consider abandoned <laughs> uh it, in in search of federal agents said they found five cell phones and a laptop. But they also said they found a dry suit used by scuba divers to keep the wear warm and dry in cold water conditions. They also found Canadian identification documents, including a passport that was reportedly stolen January two thousand nineteen. Almost two weeks later, on June fifth, Border Patrol agents on the patrol found a vessel had crossed the border and they tried to stop it. That's when agents saw two huge bundles being thrown into. the the river. When the agents approached the bundles, they found a man later identified as Masseau floating unconscious in the water. He was pulled from the water and agents determined he was tied to the bundles with a toe strap. The bundles were identified as marijuana and weighed roughly 265 pounds in total. He had previously been deported in the U S in December 1995. He is currently being held in federal custody on possession with a tent to distribute marijuana, bulk cash smuggling and illegal entry into the U S.
1: Well, he'd get off on the illegal entry because that wasn't his fault. If he hadn't been tethered, he'd you know the overboard thing dragged him into the water. So that one's got to go. <laughs> if he gets a good lawyer,
0: he. <laughs> uh-huh. it, uh It. It sounds like he had a good lawyer. So why? Why in the world? I were. Do you think that they were hoping that he had some more information? So they were kind of, you know, baiting him along there. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Go there, and then he had this stuff, and then. He he saw the, he thought he saw the light at the end of the tunnel. Plus is going to make some money because you know, he's, he's in hot water because he lost some drug dealers, $97,000 in cash. So he is probably trying to decide is, am I safer in prison or am I safer uh, getting back? So somebody had talked him into it, but the passed out thing is odd too. And then the dry suit. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of different spots, but it, it, it sounds like it'd be go, like a little good movie.
1: More you of know, a what? comedy of errors to me, right? Yeah, you
0: could you could have it done. <laughs> yeah, so, you to do a little bit of comedy spin on it, and then corny Corningtini-
1: dumber and dumber's.
0: Yeah, it, it does. Well, they, there's all those books I used to read. You know, the world's dumbest criminals and stuff, and you just laugh at what people do. A uh, quarantining diver divers film a tiger shark taking repeated bites out of a boat in middle of nowhere. Uh, they were in Middletown Reef off. NSW is at, uh, North South Wales. Is that what that means? NSW were, sh- were shocked after a large tiger shark repeatedly. And there, let me give this to the, oh, and I missed the chat room. They're saying, I want to ride in the submarine. I, I want to see po- photos of the submarine. Uh, underwater photographer, uh, oceanographer, Dean Crop, who runs a re- YouTube channel, barefoot captain told nine news. He was diving with his crew and he spotted a large predator encroaching on them. They exited the water real quick. Uh, I stood in the back of the boat and filmed the encounter. The shark made a a lunge at the vessel, teeth landing just centimeters from his foot. I jumped; my feet were right there. I told everyone to jump off the back deck. I was really surprised. I had seen tiger sharks do crazy stuff when they're being fed, but none of that was happening. Nearly an hour, the inquisitive shark circled the boat, proceeded to repeatedly take bites at the back deck and dinghy, while most would have been terrified during the encounter, Mister crop said the shark was just curious juvenile likely hadn't seen humans before one of the water pumps in the back of the boat kept turning on and off uh, which is normal but a little bit of vibration seemed to be enough every time the pump turned on he turned towards the boat tiger sharks are real inquisitive they'll take a taste of just about anything they don't understand the problem for the tiger shark is they have a t- uh they have to test nibble of you would be fatal out there so we stay out of the water the rest of the day he was just too interested.
1: So basically there was an immature teenager and he just kept biting at the boat because he didn't know better. That's what it sounds like. The video actually shows just what we're talking about. It's like one of those duh things.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So don't look like food and don't don't mess with teenagers. Isn't, isn't that that can go for like humans too, can it? How about this one for Dima? The Diving Equipment Manufacturers Association has canceled the 2020 show that was scheduled for New Orleans. And it's not like this was a July show. This is a show that is in November. Uh, it was scheduled to be in New Orleans in November for the first time since the early 2000s. It has been canceled due to the continuing effects of COVID-19. DEMA board of directors determined that for the safety and financial well-being of DEMA attendees and exhibitors, the annual DEMA show will not play, take place this November. The DEMA show 2021 will take place in person as scheduled from Tuesday 16th of November to Friday the 19th of November 2021 in Las Vegas, Nevada, with additional measures taken to ensure the health and safety for all. In a statement, the spokesperson said, while the industry will not be able to convene for a face-to-face DEMA show this November, DEMA will connect with the diving community to engage in unique creative ways beginning in September 2020. DEMA will announce details in the coming weeks and look forward to providing great community learning and engagement opportunity for diving professionals using tools that are well-suited for the current business environment. So what this is, is nobody knew if they were coming and nobody knew if they were exhibiting. So if you're hosting a show, that's not a good situation to be in, you know, cause they know who's paid up their bills and who signed up and, and everything. And that venue has a certain cost to it. Uh, so if you're going to, Cancel it, cancel it early. I think that's much better than letting it sneak up to the end. But I well, think this is— you ever is go to
1: Oshkosh? The,
0: uh, the the fly-in? I've, I, I, I've not been to it Well, it, it's been the fly-in. I've been by the site a bunch of times for work, but I haven't been there when the, the fly-in's been going on.
1: Yeah, they just canceled that, and then they went through the litany of items you can't do because they're not having that telling you you can still fly into the area, but you can't camp, can't go certain places, none of the buildings are open. Basically you can fly there, get out, take a cab and go to a local restaurant. <laughs> but that's a heck of a lot of money. And there's that's a an- lot of people that go to that.
0: And that's an airport, isn't it? Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. So so they're basically saying is that the airport's still there. Oh yeah. And so the you but know there's all the
1: different facilities that support that during the FAA convention, basically a month, none of that's going to be available.
0: And in the challenge with that, also, is a lot of those, I don't know that group specifically, but you have volunteers who are helping. And if you don't have a commitment from volunteers, you know, because honestly, you know, the greatest generation and their, you know, people within a few years of that are probably your best volunteers. And if they're yeah. not comfortable with, uh, the health situation you've you're you're going to be down on manpower so if, even with everything else considered that's that's got to be a challenge and something to be considered absolutely in, in our area here uh we're probably going to be one of the first locations to test this out but the barion county youth fair uh which i believe it's their is it their 80th year or is it the 100th year i thought it was already canceled the barion county hasn't been canceled all the other ones have been canceled. Van Spring
1: Springs have been canceled.
0: Yeah, the, the parade the, for the 4th of July has been canceled, but the Berrien County Youth Fair in Berrien Springs, Michigan, is still going on. I mean, it still could be canceled, but uh, they're planning it to go on. In fact, they're doing a food drive-through coming up one of these weekends. So they'll have some of the food vendors there who have been hurting because all the other events that they go to have been canceled. So they're going to bring them in just for a weekend to let them sell some food. So if you are missing your fair food in anticipation of the fair, there's going to be some there, including the corn dog booth, which is probably one of the best values. Uh, But they're still playing and going on. When uh, Because in Michigan, the Michigan 4-H has said there cannot be any Michigan 4-H events until September 1st at the earliest. So that's clubs, that's fairs that are 4-H fairs, which our fair is not a 4-H fair. There are 4-H clubs at the fair, but it's not a 4-H fair. So in the state of Michigan, there's only a handful of fairs who could even continue, and some of them who could have already canceled. So like I said, all of them in our proximity have have already decided to cancel.
1: Ain't a good year.
0: Yeah, Karen's saying that's June 19th and 21st, including the corn dog. Yep.
1: If they have it, I'll be very surprised.
0: The the you fair, yep, uh, yep. Well, well, we'll see.
1: Well, a lot because it's going to depend. If they have that second wave they've been talking about, then they won't. If they don't have the second wave, they will.
0: I've been looking at the numbers, and here, you know, here's some incredibly local information. So let me pull up the the chart. Uh, and there's a new dashboard made by the University of Michigan, which is actually. Really nice, and that gives you some good details into the data. So I don't know if you've seen this, Mac.
1: No, I have not, because I keep hearing about well, so and so screwed this data up. The number of the you know the CDC didn't do a good job of this. So it's like, what well, can you
0: believe anymore? They keep changing their minds. Well, the thing with this, and and I, I think if any, well, it's it's hard to say. There's there's numbers that have been weighed on either side. But so this one is And for the listeners who won't look at uh, this map. I hopefully I remember putting in the show notes, but it's M I start map dot info is the website. And what they're doing is they're plotting the numbers. My complaint with it is that the numbers are always about five or six days behind. And that doesn't give you a good feeling because there are other spots that are putting numbers up right away. So it makes you wonder what's going on and then i've also had people say things like uh i've been requested to test a bunch more people because we need more tests for whatever so but even even that information's hard to come by because why is somebody telling you or not telling you so it's just so much dif- disinformation on both sides of the both sides of it but if you can believe this data uh it's i think this is what's they're using to justify uh when they enter the phases. Now, the question is, is it's where it's where you are above or below a line, but who decides where that line should be in the first place? And that's some of the argument. But the uh, if you go to that chart uh, and what you do is there's a map of Michigan. You click on your section of Michigan and then you click on your county and uh, you can look at all the data. But uh, and you can see the peak and we've in Berrien County. We we had. Uh, we our high point was May nineteenth and then we had a trough, and then we had a second peak on June second, and we're now on a downward slope. but when you look at Michigan as a whole, Michigan as a whole has been on a significant downward slope, so did you just say hour.
1: Michigan as a whole?
0: yes, oh yeah, yeah, if you look <laughs> at Michigan as a whole yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, uh, that. Curious that is not endorsed by the pure michigan campaign that's one of their rejected marketing terms michigan as a whole <laughs> and and for divers we'd say michigan as a whole you put water in which is why we have the great lakes See, there's a save yeah and what karen's talking about which i agree with her is that if you keep the uh, the ro below 1 which is you know the the transmission rate if you can get it where less people are being transmitted to you know like if somebody who gets it trans you know if if it if 10 people get Covid, but they only give it to eight more people. You you eventually, it's going to run out of steam, and I think that's kind of where we are now. Uh, once we get, to I'm the point where real can, curious.
1: After Memorial Day, I when I did my flyover, the beaches were were a, not a lot of people, but mm-hmm. the week after there was more people than there was at Memorial weekend. So to me, I was going to wait two weeks after last week to see what happens.
0: I I think if you're concerned about getting it. You want to wait two to three weeks from kind of, because right now the state says we are at the, you know, was was that phase? uh, Let me hear what they're calling it. We're we're at the phase four medium risk, and then the next phase is phase five, which is low risk, and then six is post-pandemic. So I agree we're we're certainly not at post-pandemic, but I think we're probably in the low-risk phase. And if we're not there yet, we're we're moving into it just in the week. And I think the reason we're moving into it, and that's despite people not following the rules, because like you pointed out, social distancing, I had to go to Meyer to pick up dog food. And it's the first time I've been in Meyer since February. And I wore my mask. And I would say only 25 to 30% are wearing masks in Meijer. Not Really? The, empl- the employees are, but... Everybody else isn't. And you can't stereotype. You can't say that this person type or this gender or this, you know, is going to be. Cause I saw young people with masks, young people without masks, you know, middle age, you know, it just, it didn't, you couldn't predict who would be wearing a mask or who wouldn't be. But it was, I'd say, one out of three people wearing a mask in there, not including employees. Employees, because it's their, their requirement to work there we're all wearing masks but and uh my wife had been saying it was about 50 50 a couple of weeks ago so people have already kind of given up on it uh i saw in stevensville the watermark brewery i don't know you familiar where that is yeah uh that was open today you know they don't have a kitchen but they have a food truck they had the outdoor open there was nobody it and the number of people there if if you lined them up in a grid you'd be very lucky to be able to get six-foot spacing. With that, there was not six-foot spacing, and there was zero masks. There there was a group of—
1: What was the age group? I've uh, noticed when I've been, the older people are wearing the mask. That's just my observation. But I'm, again, not really going in. I'm using the little, you go pick up your medicine at the corner, you know, through the booth, that kind of stuff.
0: I did not see many people at the store or at Watermark over the age of 60. But I did see there was a group of bikers there, and when I say bikers, I'm not talking Harley type. I'm I, talking, right. uh, You know the uh, skin tight <laughs> nylon type, uh, suit mm-hmm. type, and there was probably thirty of them, and there there were there was not a foot between them with no mass. So, uh, yeah. So the way I look at this is, is, put this in your calendar. Count two weeks from now if we haven't had a spike it's over with because if they're going to, if they can transmit it or something, they're going to, they're doing it right now.
1: Well, yeah, it suits like me. I'd like it to get over with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Karen, uh, put Oh, one Karen just there. posted a chart up. I mean, that's possible, but even if that's what it does, that's still, you know, we're, we're still in the downward. There's like, I mean, you can say that's a bump in the map, but I wouldn't call that a second spike. To me, a second spike would have to be as high as the first spike. And, I just don't think we've got enough people who can catch it. They're going to go, yeah. So, but I do, I do, I completely agree. That's what we're going to see because there are people who don't think that they can get it who can still get it. I mean, there's still people out there with it. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm still washing my hands with the, uh, but I I have to say I like the hand cleaner that is made from the distilleries. <laughs> 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 it's like. Mm, are, you, are, you, are you using
1: that hand cleaner internally or actually?
0: Oh, of course. No, no, no. You have to use it in your hands, but I can dream. <laughs> I just, I just, I just don't want to do the, the uh, Betty Ford thing. <laughs> what was what it? She was doing Windex or something that, that when she got in trouble, do you remember that? No, I do not. Oh, that's, a, that's old. It's ancient Michigan history for that. Only old people know. And I, I'm maybe I'm way too old. Uh, so there's our COVID sidetrack for the week, but uh yeah. Well, I, I, it
1: applies to us because we're not diving as we had been because of yep. this, and yeah. we are starting to get back into the groove of diving, but not with the same extent that we did six months ago.
0: Yeah. Well, and this actually leads into our next article real well, which it almost sounds like we planned it, but I completely off script, is that uh Patty has a COVID diving status map. So, you know, one thing we've we've realized as we're doing this show is not every country and every place is at the same point in the COVID recovery or with the rules on whether you can dive or not. So Patty has put out this map, and you can search and find out what location you're thinking about traveling to, whether they have diving. And some of the options, according to the legend of the map, is... Diving is allowed with no restrictions. Diving is allowed with some restrictions. Diving is not allowed. Our diving restrictions vary by state, province, and district. So, uh, which, you know, Brazil and Mexico are the one where it varies. Uh, so, well, they've got Michigan. So, I'm clicking on Michigan right now. So said scuba diving is allowed with restrictions. It has May 28th as full reopening, which means that they're not updating their information because we're past that date. Travel into the country is allowed with restrictions. Travel out of the country is allowed with restrictions. Travel within the country is allowed with restrictions. PS, don't go through the Canadian border.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm really That's, surprised we have not got a lot more information. On Russia.
0: Yeah, but this this is this is handy. Uh, other than I'm concerned that the information is a little outdated already, and I've just discovered this. So.
1: Well, I was watching a uh, France, for example, uh, downtown shot yesterday, and. That place was jammed, and I don't think I saw four masks in the three minute video and, and they isn't... were definitely not separated by any distance. If you've been there, you know how small the tables are to begin with, and everybody is jammed together, so
0: oh. I found that extremely interesting. that's all puzzling, but yeah, maybe they've just some places I think have just kind of given up uh and this isn't an article we're covering, but did you see the double lung transplant done in Illinois? no. They had a young lady in her 20s who had caught COVID, uh, was on uh, respirators and was to the point where uh, she had been on the the lung transplant list and she wouldn't live if she didn't get it immediately. So they bumped her up and she successfully had the first double lung transplant in the U.S.
1: And it shouldn't have been that way. I have a friend who's had a double lung.
0: Oh, she had a double lung?
1: He he had one a couple years ago. Well, it's been God and, eight years ago.
0: Oh, okay. So that shows you that they don't, nobody keeps track of anything. Everything's got to be first. But yeah. So, so she had a double lung transplant, and they said that when they were removing her old lungs, it was hard because everything had like disintegrated and had collapsed and was stuck. So, but they, they expect a full recovery, which I thought was pretty amazing. But there are some people who get COVID and have a really bad situation from it uh scuba diving EcoWatch. scuba diving after coronavirus what you need to know And let's see if we agree with them they said scuba divers around the world are holding their uh breath to see if coronavirus infections affect their ability to dive some preliminary data while inconclusive indicates that permanent lung damage can occur even in mild cases all experts are advising for further studies to examine potential permanent effects like other respiratory illnesses, COVID 19 can cause lasting lung damage. This, according to Dr. Mathis Nochetto, Director of Medical Services at Divers Alert Network, Dan. The doctor addressed the fears of many scuba divers in a company webinar on diving after COVID 19 infections. Joseph Bittery, a principal investigator in a study to use hyperbaric medicine to treat coronavirus patients, explained to EcoWatch that lung cells were damaged by both the coronavirus infection and the body's inflammatory reaction to it, reducing lung function and gas exchange capabilities. He noted that in the webinar that inflammation causes the leakage of fluid and pus into the lungs, which can result in irreparable lung scarring and damage. It is not good for anyone's lungs, let alone diving. There is no proof that lungs have fully recovered from COVID-19. Everyone that has had COVID so far, even if they have COVID in January, their lungs are still likely recovering. So it's too soon to say if they're even, if they're able or not going to be to dive. An April 15th report from Austria put the diving world on high alert. Dr. Frank Hartig treated six infected divers who only suffered mild symptoms, were not hospitalized or recovered at home, according to Cayman Compass, although clinically recovered all six participants exhibited irreversible long-term lung damage, which made full recovery unlikely. Two exhibited asthmatic like irritated lungs, two suffered low oxygen supplies, four suffered significant changes to lung structure. Reported came encompassed. None of the six divers can be released for diving for the time being, despite being well despite their well being. Doctors said that patients who fully recover could still suffer lung damage, which could permanently prohibit scuba diving and other forms of exercise. He implored diving professionals like dive instructors, commercial divers, to avoid Contacting disease at all costs. It is a responsible position statement. Undersea Hyperbaric Medical Society (UHMS) called the findings generalized and premature. The medical society emphasized at the present time we simply do not have sufficient data to support or refute the, de- the def- definitive proclamations made by this case series. The primary source of scientific information regarding diving noted that more time and studies are needed to accurately assess the potential impact of disease an individual's health and ability to dive.
1: Uh, well looking at those x-rays, it don't look good.
0: Yeah. And and I and I think it depends on how you got it, because there are asymptomatic people who have I I don't believe that everybody who didn't have system uh symptoms is this bad. But the the key is gonna
1: be all these athletes who got mm-hmm. it and didn't have it badly, let's see what their lungs look like. Yeah. When they start to play or try to play.
0: Right. They've got the money and they've got the, the systems to support them. So they're going to be very early to get it. And, you know, when you're a million dollar athlete with a contract, there's not, they're going to get MRIs and all these sorts of things to figure out how bad.
1: Right. And this is the one that they said, well, it's only mild. Well, if it's only mild and you have that kind of lung damage, uh, you're going to see a lot more guys who are playing that says maybe I don't want to play right now because you don't want that either. Yep. That's going to be the interesting part as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yep. We just don't know yet. And then uh, this next article I thought was just an interesting PR thing. Lieutenant Governor Pamela Evitt, who's the fifth from the light in the photo, fo- uh, fifth <laughs> fifth from the left in the photo with her husband David, fourth from the left. During a break in the scuba training taught by Major General Tom Milliken, retired commanding general of South Carolina State Guard and the current chair of the South Carolina Floodwater Commission, there in their initial portion of training was conducted by Milliken and his team in Camden with dives following Lake Murray. Milliken will lead a month-long expedition in July across South Carolina, following the 500-mile Palmetto Trail, that eventually will showcase SE Seven or the Seven Natural Wonders of South Carolina. So, they got some training in. Uh, the one thing I will, I'm surprised, and maybe South Carolina is a different spot than we are, but I'm surprised that uh, everybody in that photo looks pretty close together, wouldn't you say?
1: There are some oldies in there. Yeah. Lake Murray is an interesting place, by the way. There's a—I used to live out that way, mm-hmm. uh, called Bomb Island, and that's appropriately named. They used to use it for a bombing practice back in World War II. Yeah, And you could go out there and around it in the dives, you would find all sorts of interesting items. It was also one of the places where they recovered fully intact B-7 bomber.
0: Yeah, I, I think I'm on a couple of Facebook groups for that area for scuba divers. So uh, looks to be they have a blast down that way. Uh, German warship wreck off the Kent coast given Heritage Protection Memorial to 284 men from Folkestone Cemetery, also to be listed on Grade 2. The wreck of the German battleship that sank in the Channel in 1878 after being accidentally rammed has been given heritage protection. Historic England said the memorial for the Folkestone Cemetery due to the 284 men who lost their lives on SMS Grosser Kurfürst would be in the list at grade two. The announcement shines light on the fascinating, if tragic, episode in the 19th century naval history. In 1878, British and Germany were at peace, and the Grosser Kerfurst. And the Kronig Wilhelm, another German warship, were preparing for an annual summer training exercise off the coast of Kent. The warships came across a pair of sailing ships attempting to get out of their way. The lack of room for maneuvers led to the Kronig Wilhelm ramming into the Gosser Kurfürst. These ships are ironclad, so they're really big, tough, strong, and heavy, said Helfen Myrna, Maritime Archaeologist Historic England. The uh, Koenig collided and tore a great big hole in the side of the Grosser and it went down in minutes. There's no chance for it all. Approximately 500 crew were on board. Some were rescued by Kent fishing boats. Total 284 men died with bodies washing on the shore for days to come. Most would have been below deck when the collision took place. Many of the recovered bodies were interred in Sheraton Road Cemetery in Folkestone. And a memorial paid for by German sailors was made by sculptor, Edward Lorson The shipwreck has been scheduled and added to the National Heritage List for England which means recreational divers can dive the wreck but its contents have protection. Mara said it's quite a new usual ship has been lying upside down on the seabed the chances are a lot of superstructure is going to be preserved it might be squashed but it hasn't been exposed to the tide so there's a lot of interesting information to be gained. There's about 6000 known shipwrecks in England's coast waters and documentary records for about 32000 uh, The Großer Kerfurst is interesting because it falls into an experimental period of naval warfare between wooden sailing ships with cannons and dreadnought battleships of the First World War. The MP for Folkestone and Hith, Diamond Collins, welcomed the news. The monument is an important reminder of anglo german friendship and solidarity in times of disaster, remember, as well as a time of enmity.
1: What was the name of that ship again? The SMS <laughs> Großer Krush?
0: yeah, the grocer, G O, G R O S S E R, K U R F U R S T, and the U is you know the one with a couple dots above it. Yeah, and the it reason
1: was... I, I say that's funny. Uh-huh. Odd.
0: This is World War One, correct? This is before World War One. This is uh, eighteen seventy-eight. Eighteen or
1: nineteen?
0: Eighteen oh, okay, seventy-eight.
1: Okay, the reason I say that is a there's a second chip with that name that was scuttled in 1919. That's why it had me going. I was trying to figure out.
0: Yeah. Same name, different ship? I think it's the same name uh, because they they sank in the channel. So it sounds like the Great Britain and Germany were doing some uh, peacetime, you know, war exercises, which I don't know if that means we're going to come to port at the same time and drink, Uh, but it didn't go too well. It sounds like they were trying to dodge— Sailing vessels who were also in the channel and they ran into each other. So Does that
1: say how deep that is? I'm looking at the story.
0: they didn't in the article, but I imagine it's in the river or in the bay, so it shouldn't be terribly deep. And it's divable. They they allow for diving even though it's preserved.
1: Well I know the other ones were in Scapa Flow and there's a whole one stuff about Scapa Flow, but I was just yeah. looking at this trying to figure out are they talking about?
0: Yeah, this is going to be shallower.
1: Sorry to get off topic there.
0: Yeah, no problem. I'm, I'm sure other people had the same questions. And the, and the marker is pretty well done. I mean, I, I've always liked the sculptures and memorials from this time period. Uh, it's about the same time period as in downtown St. Joe that uh, fountain, I think, was made about this. Oh, did era. you see a picture of it? Yeah, they got it right here in the article, yeah.
1: Okay, I don't have that article.
0: Here, let me uh, paste it in the chat room, and you can see it. Yeah, I was going to do the same. Yeah, it's a oh, beautiful memorial for gosh. the for the cemetery, and then the side scan sonar is pretty impressive too. And then the the sonar picture, you can see that it's upside down, and that about a third of the vessel, and it's hard to tell, but I'm going to say that's the bow section um, is still got is still covered, but the rest is kind of collapsed onto its internal structures.
1: Yeah, I was looking at the uh, another pictorial. A lot, a lot of different pictures on this one. Yeah. I posted where I was at up there, and if you look at the side profile diving, a driving the drawing, the middle part of the boat almost looks like a submarine. <laughs> it's interesting.
0: Yeah, because this kind of reminds me of that time period where uh, you know they, they they weren't confident enough to get rid of the sails, but it was still. Ironclad with a steam engine.
1: Yeah, I just put a. Picture.
0: Yeah, that's that's a nice one.
1: That's when men were men. I mean, can you imagine in a hurricane trying to get up there and work on those sails? Yeah. <laughs> I I don't know what incentive you could give me to get up there. I'm freezing my butt off in the North Atlantic, and I'm going you to didn't, do what? And win? You didn't.
0: You didn't know any better, and you probably thought you wouldn't live if you if you didn't go and do it because there's. No other reason I can think of. I mean, you you're probably started on the ship when you were eight to 10, and you just kept there your whole life. Or maybe I've just read too many books that were made, might be mostly fiction, but it just seems that that's a, a I certainly just cannot imagine life. being a
1: sailor back in those days.
0: Oh, yeah. Climb up and a hardy person. And if you had a fear, you had to get over it pretty quick, it looks like.
1: Yeah, heights. Uh,
0: <laughs> and yeah. freezing like to death? And then Mexico, archaeologists have accidentally <laughs> discovered a 200-year-old shipwreck. Yeah, I don't know how we did it. Uh, Mexican archaeologists recently discovered the remains of a 200-year-old shipwreck off the country's Caribbean coast. More interesting is the fact that it was accidental discovery. Refer, referring to this, the National Oceanific, Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration spokesperson, Emily Crum, Stated that typically when they find discover shipwrecks, they have a certain basis information which enables them to search for the target. Emily added that in essence there were no prior information to suggest the shipwreck was there, the team just stumbled upon it. As per the latest news reports, remains of the ship are located off the coast of Quintana Roo, which is reportedly sank after hitting a reef more than two hundred years ago. The shipwreck was discovered around thirty-five kilometers from Manchihal. In Mexico's Caribbean coast is believed to be from the 18th, and 19th century. Reports say the ship has been named Manuel Poloco, i.e., the name of the fisherman who discovered the shipwreck and reported it to authorities. After discovery, archaeologists started speculating the reason and the details for the ship. Well, some of the views that the shipwreck belonged to an 18th century and 19th century British ships, others spotted cannon and anchor and iron ingots among the remains. Analyzing the probable scenarios, archaeologists are of the view the ship sank after hitting the uh, Chinchoro Bank, which was referred to as the sleep robbing reef or the nightmare reef. As per the records, many as 70 shipwrecks have been discovered from this area till now. Mexico has declared the area an underwater cultural heritage site because of many wrecks that have been discovered there, including two Spanish galleons reported this recent finding of the shipwreck, the 70th shipwreck found in the Area, we covered this before. I, I, maybe it. Well, that one
1: picture that I that
0: really looks like an iron chip, especially the bow of it. It does just that. It's so stiff and intact. Yeah, and I don't see any
1: place for a mast. I'm looking at the cargo hole with the cover still on it, and then you go to that the last picture, yeah. which well, seems the, to be very deep, and is that the aft section? Because that well, looks metallic also.
0: Well, here's the thing. I think that's not the photo. If you look at the photo in the corner, it says credit iStock. This is clip art.
1: Okay. Yes. So that took the sales right out of it. Oh.
0: Yeah. And the next one says photo courtesy of Noah, which is why I covered this. I thought that was it, but I think that's a Noah photo, not a Noah photo of this wreck. Yeah. (laughs) Oh well. But people like photos, and they wouldn't know better. But, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping we get some more information on it. Uh, and then we have a couple articles. Let's see, which is the one? Oh, uh, take a look at this other article on the uh, Mexico shipwreck. I'm going to paste that in the chat room. And that one has a different photo. And that makes me almost believe that might be the actual photo of the wreck. And that one definitely does not look metal metallic at all. And let me know what you th- think of that one. Do you see it? Uh not yet. I'm still
1: uh coming to life.
0: Slowly loading. How did the gloom materializes the shipwreck with an ROV hovering above it?
1: Oh. That's an interesting photo. Isn't it?
0: Yeah. And I don't think that's a uh I think there's nothing to make me indi that, that indicates to me that is not a photo of that wreck.
1: Okay, yeah, that's plenty of wood and timbers all around. Yeah. You got a you mast can. going up.
0: Yeah, the the right is the, uh, I would say, the bow, and the left is the stern. It looks like there's a tiller, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, it looked like it embedded itself in a, almost like Sandy Hills down there, doesn't it?
0: Our yeah. Rock. Yeah. Well, if it's 200 years ago, I mean, you've, you've got some time for some flock and silt to build up. So the, the cannon and the anchors are conclusive enough. The head of the study revealed the anchors and cannon found the ship we revealing an 18th-century English ship. The statement issued by INAH said, Little by little, a sailboat from the late 18th-century, early 19th-century begins to reel the history of the waters around the Chinnaroo Bank and the Yucatan Peninsula. The underwater archaeologists theorize how the crew of the vessel made the last efforts to avoid the catastrophic event. This is inferred by discovery of activated anchor, that is, it is launched in the sea, with the intention of attaching itself to the reef barrier to save the ship from running aground, and that today is fully outgrown with coral. INAH protects and investigates 70 shipwrecks in the Chinchuro Bank, and the archaeologists believe that with each new shipwreck found, people can learn more about the last five centuries of navigation within the American waters. Manuel Poloco, the fisherman who spotted the shipwreck and reported to Mexico's National Archaeological Institute, the head of the new study regarded the shipwreck, admits that a lot of the needed details are unknown. Therefore, we cannot wait for further investigations. Let's hope we'll get them pretty soon. I wonder what I the guy think. was doing to to locate that. Well, because by the look in the photo, that appears to be many hundreds of feet down. That's yeah. not, that's what not was, in... What was
1: that guy looking for?
0: I mean, did he lose a net and he was pissed? And then he... Because from other articles I had seen, he... He's an older fisherman, so I don't know if he knew about it for a while and just reported it to say, "Hey, I've got it," or or what this backstory is right now. Yeah, but by that, that's usually in the four hundred plus range because it's black as night. So unless they did it at night, uh, that's just telling me it's fairly deep. Yeah, cool though. You I mean, I like I like well, to cover those.
1: Always interesting because yeah. you always wonder what happened. Yeah. Of course, I also um, secondarily wonder what's on board.
0: Yeah. Well, it's always got gold. And, uh, you know, if it's a Clive Custler book, there's some obtanium and some radioactive material and uh, a spy who was on his last mission before retiring. Uh, so. And speaking of political, uh record of a gunboat that JFK commanded under fire. And its final World War II service is excavated 30 years after it sank in the Harlem River. Salvage crews have lifted the wreck of the torpedo boat, thought to have been commanded uh, commanded heroically by John F. Kennedy in New York City's Harlem River. One engine frame, two bottom parts with propellers, axles, one propeller in place, two missing. One rudder were excavated on June 1st. While on June 3rd, a mini generator hatch door frame, broken wooden pieces were lifted from the water. The boat commanded by JFK in World War II was removed because the Metropolitan Transport Authority, MTA, was building a $610 million seawall along the river to prevent flooding in the 207th Street train yard, which went underwater during Hurricane Sandy in 2012. JFK's valiant record, reoccurring several of his PT-109 crew members in August 1942 after being Ran by a Japanese warship memorialized him as a World War II hero, and helped boost his credentials on his way to the White House. And they've got some nice photos in here. I have to say that the Daily Mail does yes, like I to give that. a bunch of photos. So they got the hatch door, the broken wooden pieces recovered, uh, and I'm glad they told me because I'd have no idea what that was. Oh, uh, uh, you with the rudder
1: That's about it.
0: That. Yeah, the rudder you can. Uh, is that just the rudder laid on another piece? It's not how it would have matched. So if done. you look at the
1: third picture down, you'll see the rudder, and then you see the shaft and the coupling.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that gives you an idea of the scale of the boat, because sometimes it's hard to figure. But these PT boats weren't uh, large. Didn't, didn't they used to have torpedoes on them, too, a oh, PT boat? Yeah, off to, to the
1: side to do rails so you could yeah. launch. Some of the older ones towards... In the late 50s and 60s, when you used to have Sea Scouts uh, around the coast, like in Carolina, the, one of the local Explorer Sea Scout units was mm-hmm. given a PT boat. That's how they got rid of some yeah. of them. Because they were made but, of but, plexi, plexi wood.
0: Now I be, they I were bet, not made of metal. But I bet that uh, just to be unfair to the, to the Sea Scouts, they didn't give them any torpedoes.
1: No. No, oh, come on. No, none of the cannons, well, on it, the guns, or well, are... what kind of fun is that? Well, you had those later.
0: You had those later. Twelve, the twelve year old. It's like every Sea Scout troop is probably figuring out how to put some torpedoes on their boat. <laughs> and you got Sea Scouts are normally those are explorers. They're in their teens. Yeah. They're not the the small kids. Yeah, they're in their teens, but the the thing which usually kills them from being too ambitious. Is about one-third of the way into any projects, they discover girls, and that probably kills it.
1: Yeah, it depends. I was ever scouts. <laughs> we, we had helicopters and airplanes. Interesting photos, though.
0: It's interesting. always interesting
1: how you know something's down there, but until you want to do something else, you don't care.
0: So was this just like docked there and it just kind of sank? I mean, was this like one that had been donated to, like you said, like a ski uh sea scout group? or a uh auxiliary or something and nobody could maintain it and nobody you mean wanted that to do it. Yeah.
1: Well the guy who owned it abandoned it in place and it just sank in uh,
0: the 70s. Oh, did they say in the 70s?
1: Yeah. Uh the boat's new owner or the next owner after they got it uh abandoned it and it sank in the river in 1970s.
0: Yeah. So that's how it because
1: their MTA is building a seawall
0: Okay, here it is. Yeah. Redmond Burke, 80, a retired school teacher, told the Tribune he bought the fifth the fifty-nine for a thousand dollars while working at the community college in nineteen seventy. So that a thousand dollars is that's not pocket money. No, not by not then. Uh, uh by then the boat would seemed alien to Kennedy. Its war ready engines had been stripped out for economical replacements, dirts replaced with fishing rod holders. Burke said he was unaware of the boat's history until one of his students who had been researching Kennedy's war record told him. You're living on a famous boat. Oh, so he was living on it. Oh. Wow. In the mid-70s, he left the boat, which said it'd become a hazard to sink in the bottom of the river. So it was just a case of, you know, he bought the boat, was living on it like a a house, and just couldn't maintain it. And then there's a, a picture of it at the dock sunk. Party boat. The water does amazing things. You can go from something that's, yeah, that's not too bad. Because I, I remember my dad used to like to buy old boats, and then he'd bring them home, and then you'd you'd start getting into them and you, you know, you, you see the wood that looks nice and pretty and varnished and you push that with a screwdriver and it goes all the way through because it's all dry rotted out. Uh, yeah, water, water's not nice to things made out of, with wood components. So a, a good article worth reading. We'll have that in the show notes yeah. as well. Uh, and there's a few of them so you can search if you want some other ones. So the other, the other one has uh, an interesting photo. Wow. That one here, I'll paste this in the chat room. Uh, that one has a a photo of it all decked out with all the the armaments on it, which I'm sure the students would have loved to have seen. See, what's, what's interesting is that this one doesn't have any of the railing, so it had been redone. Somebody had spent some time redoing it. So you figure from the 40s to 70s, you know, there's you know, 20, 30 years, which is can be long for a boat. You know. And then we got an article, The First American Woman to Walk in Space Has Now Visited the Deepest Place on Earth. Just eight people have reached Challenger Deep, the deepest part of the ocean. More than 550 people have visited space, but only one person has done both, and that is Catherine Sullivan. On Sunday, NASA astronaut and oceanographer visited Challenger Deep, which sits at the depth of 10,928 meters, 35,853 feet in the Western Pacific, as part of the Ring of Fire expedition organized by Bestoke Adventure Company EYOS Expeditions undersea technology specialist Calden Ocean. Oceanic. Ahead of the expedition, they invited three explorers, which are called Michigan Deep Specialists, to venture to the bottom of the Marinara Trench where Challenger Deep is located. About 200 miles from the trench, Guam is the nearest landmass. Sullivan is the first of three explorers to finish a roughly 10 hour mission, with two more following this week. I know Challenger Deep is a bathymetric uh, feature and chart, a tectonic feature, and makes a seismic feature. But all the data-based understanding to see it in person really makes a difference in the world, Sullivan told. Uh, CNN Travel, no self-respecting marine biologist would ever be able to pass up an invitation. Leading up to dive, three explorers underwent full briefs on the mission schedule and research initiatives. But in terms of physical training, Rod McCullum, the co-founder of EYOS Expeditions and the Ring of Fire expedition leader, said, not quite like climbing Mount entrance or training for space voyage. These people are all adventurous, but you don't have to be an athlete to participate. There is something new, but not something to be feared. Ever since she was a young girl, Sullivan has been inspired by explorers. I've always followed the early astronauts, Jacques Cousteau, and the early aquanauts. They were inquisitive people. They were clever people that figured out how to go make things happen. She recalls that inquisitiveness, the sense of adventure, the curiosity that drives explorers. I could feel the that resonate with me as I watch them. US Navy Captain Sullivan first learned of Challenger Deep in the Marinara Trench during the College University of California. I say marinara, so it's is it Marinara?
1: It's not a sauce you put on your
0: As I keep thinking. I, and people got after me before. I just uh, I need to have dinner before I do these podcasts. I might not be everything might not be food. Uh suddenly it's uh, so much a history, many stories of exploration they're all the knowledge of the ocean works geo. Logically, the currents of the creatures, all the fascinate me. Mesmerized by the ocean, Sullivan continued with her studies at Dale House University, she shared a PhD in geology, focusing her research on the North Atlantic. As I went through my studies, I found I really like planning, design, execution of expeditions, she said. So when she heard NASA was hiring, she jumped at the opportunity to become an expedition operator. After graduating in nineteen seventy eight, she joined NASA, eventually becoming the first American woman to walk in space during a space shuttle challenger mission in nineteen eighty four. Sullivan also partook of two other missions: Space Shuttle Discovery, nineteen ninety; Space Shuttle Atlantis, nineteen ninety-two. During her NASA career, she later served as administrator of the National Oceanatic, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Wrote a book, handprints on Hubble: astronaut story of invention, amongst other contributions to scientific community. Do you realize so long how long ago she was in space? Isn't that crazy? It is. It honestly is. And and. I can remember as a kid, I was in Maine at the time visiting my grandparents and on TV, they had the first space shuttle. And when I say first space shuttle, it wasn't the one that flew. It was a test one in the back of an airliner. And they were just, uh, you know, for whatever, because that's how they they transported the shuttle. They put it in the yeah. back of, of an airliner. Piggyback. And, and I can remember they go, okay, well here we did this. And it will be, and it was like some ridiculous amount of time. And I can remember as a kid that was like that is forever, you know. Because I had as a, you know, I was born just before landing on the moon, and I can vaguely remember, like I can remember the mission where uh, the U.S. and Russia shook hands in space. I can remember watching that, and I should have been too long, too young to remember it, but I swear I can remember that. And so I was probably eight or ten when the space shuttle was doing the early shakeups and tests. And it was probably only like a year or two years or something, but I can remember thinking that is crazy. And then we ran. And then when they retired it what about 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago now. Uh, And then just this last weekend, they finally uh, the U S put astronauts in space. So who would have thought that we'd have done that. And then somebody said something uh, about, You know, if you told the astronauts at the time that the only way to get to space, to a space station, was to ride on a Russian (laughs) rocket, could you imagine how crazy they thought you'd have been?
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's really crazy because we would have beat the Russians had we listened to the Army. Army What we used originally was a Redstone ballistic missile. We could have used that years before and put one in orbit.
0: Oh, the space program, anything government funded has all sorts of politics. So, you know, one of the reasons why we we haven't flown in space until now is because NASA, a certain amount of their budget is nothing but a government employment scheme, you know, politicians wanting money to go to employers in their area. So, uh, I, I like the direction of space programs going in now, but we have wasted a ton and ton, and ton of money by not. Innovating and doing things that we know we should do, but that's another program. Uh, if you're interested in space, one somebody who I follow is everyday astronaut who he's just a a young man who's enthusiastic about space travel, and he live streams a lot of these launches and he gets interviews with uh, Jim bridenstein who's the NASA the head of NASA and uh, Elon Musk, and talks about space and you know uh, you know this uh, uh, New Zealand company. Rocket Labs is amazing too. I mean, there's a lot of them. You got uh, Jeff Bezos with Blue Origin. Uh, you got Virgin Galactic. I mean, there's a ton of them who are doing all sorts of interesting things in space. I but used I to
1: of- watch them generate that uh, Saturn booster rocket. Mm hmm. Five. I'd be up on Madkin Mountain there in Huntsville and watch them test fire that. Uh, and then every time they did that, I'd have to go back to my trailer and I'd have to tighten all the freaking. Nuts and bolts and electrical outlets because it would rattle my trailer and vibrate it <laughs> And back then, you could buy salvage stuff. I used to have a salvage license. And it's like, it's really wild to go to a junkyard and have a V2 rocket for sale. Oh. And it's like, if I only knew
0: then, what I know now. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what got this whole thing going, the doing a sidetrack on space. Elon Musk just wanted to buy a rocket. He was trying to get, you know, to do, I don't know if it was a publicity stunt or what, but he went over to Russia. They had a rocket for sale and they wanted too much for it. So as he's known to do with his first principles of engineering is he did. He started crunching the numbers and he like, well, there's a ton of waste in making a rocket. So he said, Hey, you can, we can do this a lot cheaper. So like any insane person, he decided he could do it. So, uh, if you believe in alternate universes, I would say there's 20. There's nineteen out of twenty alternate universes where it didn't work, <laughs> and, and we just happened to be in the one where he he got lucky. I mean, there's a lot of skill in there, but there's also plenty of amount of luck. That last launch he did, he did uh, he didn't think he had enough money for that last launch, but he was able to scrape it together. But had it not gone with their original Falcon One rocket, they'd have been done. It it's been so amazing
1: it. how they can cover their rockets on those.
0: Oh, the the landing. Yeah, that's like, freaking amazing. I don't know how they do it. I didn't believe they could do it until they did it. I was with everybody else who said, it's it's not going to happen. You can't do that. If you could do that, we'd have already done it. And they when did I, it. The most amazing thing to me was back then I got a chance to get into the limb,
1: the one they use for mock-up. And you didn't put your foot right. You could put it through the side wall of that limb. <laughs> yeah. No joke. No, it's those like, all- and
0: you're going to go, where with this? There's not a lot of thickness. It was oh, engineered. Oh, oh. I, I was watching a video about six months ago, and it was of the, uh, it wasn't the SpaceX, but it was the other one, the one who's doing the uh, Orion program. Uh, I don't think it's Boeing, but it maybe it was Rock, Lockheed, which my son got a scholarship to. Uh, but it was one of the Lockheed, uh, maybe it was one of the Lockheed companies. But they're, they're showing the sides of the first stage. And originally for the Saturn program, they were doing hexagons in the aluminum. So it's an aluminum, you know, they make that that rocket. It's a certain mm-hmm. diameter, but it's made of aluminum, and they, they mill. They've got a, a CNC that machines this aluminum to make the piece, and then they run it through a bender to roll it to get these sections that they can piece together. But they're doing it as a hexagram, and they said the reason they used a hexagram It's because they didn't have the computing power to do the mathematics to figure out the strength. So they had to overbuild everything to get the safety tolerances. And they're showing the new rockets they were building and they're doing them in squares. And at first I was thinking squares, it doesn't seem to be as efficient. But they know exactly to you know, the micron how thick that has to be to be their safety requirements, because they can run it through all the simulations of the computer, which they couldn't do before. They didn't have powerful enough computers and mathematics. You know, they couldn't do enough math, so you had to simplify the design. So I guess the squares are more complicated than the hexes for engineering. (laughs) So we're at an interesting time because we're just at the point if the Earth had a little bit larger mass, it it seems unlikely that we would have, without some advancement in technology beyond what we currently have, we'd have been able to get off the planet. And then with uh, SpaceX, with their Starship, they're just going, they're doing the math and saying, hey, if we make this thing ridiculously big, we get some efficiencies. So that's what they're doing. So, but I feel cheated. I feel like this should have happened 20, 30 years ago. Uh, my, my cousin, my first cousin, her dream was to be an astronaut. And, uh, you know, it's incredibly difficult to be. I mean, she was smart enough, but for sure. But, you know, there's just not that many people who get to be astronauts. Uh, on the hardware side of things, Uh, DiverNet had an article, and they're talking about this from a press release from Atomic Aquatics, and it's a scuba heat exchanger. And I wanted to get your take on it, Mac.
1: Well, back in my day, we had an item called the Wamba. Uh
0: huh. That's
1: called the warm air breathing apparatus that does the same thing, and it cost forty-five (laughs) dollars.
0: Uh huh. And that was go ahead.
1: I don't know how that works. I'm looking at it and trying to determine it, but the Wamba was actually. A big thermos bottle with a coil just like that one and you filled it up and your line your airline went through the wamba to your regulator. So as it came out of your tank, it warmed up because you had hot water in that thermos and mm-hmm. when you you know, obviously when the heat got out of the, the bottle, it gets cold again, but initially you had warm air.
0: Yeah. It says, scuba heat fits between most regulators first and second stage and is claimed to greatly reduce icing risk without impairing breathing performance. The unit designed for easy installation requiring no batteries and costs 360 pounds. So is it just trying to use the mass of the water? Yeah, because water, because it's liquid, is going to be, you know, 31 or, you know, negative 1 Celsius salt water wouldn't that be about as cold as it could get
1: yeah i don't know the transfer coefficients for that that's got to be what they're doing
0: uh-huh
1: they're running through it to help warm it up but uh the womba worked <laughs> yeah. but a lot of people didn't buy them because that's just an extra and again how many yeah. people do in the ice back then we're still talking we're doing wetsuits here
0: yeah well the the other thing i'm thinking about is isn't there uh like poseidon and some other regulator brands who are known for because we dive in ice with our regulators i mean i have a uh, a coal a, an ice rated aqua lung uh, while well, i knock on wood haven't had it free flow on me but i do take precautions uh is this really needed so i, you know, I wouldn't mind
1: trying one if they give if they wanted someone to check it yeah, out
0: send you yeah about 450 dollars worth of uh equipment they could send us one we'd we try it out. You know, you you could do the one with the with it on. I'll do the one without, and then of course what they need to do is send us full regulator sets, both ways, so that we'd have a a control and and the, the the one with it on it. Uh, yeah, we'd give just, them a good just r- to make sure everything worked. Yeah, and we try it out. But uh, so I- interesting item, or maybe this is the exact same item you're talking about, and they bought the patent and they're just re-implementing it, or it's come Except out they're of they're not patent. using patent. water, they're I using mean, coils yeah yeah but there's nothing to say you couldn't pour warm water over those coils. It seems like that'd be efficient too
1: yep and or put them in a it, canister, seal it up so you can add the hot water and with the thermal efficiency of some of the containers
0: nowadays, that could last quite a while yeah see what for those of you who don't dive in cold water, you know normally in in the in the warm tropical water, uh one of the things you check in your air is you're up on the surface and you breathe. When you're doing an ice dive, the rule is don't breathe on your regulator on the surface. Absolutely. So what you want to do is you keep everything as warm as it can be. You know, it's in your vehicle, it's in your shanty as you're dressing to keep it warm. And then you open it up. And when you get it underwater, you want it underwater when you take your first breath. And the reason is, is that that water has, it, even it, since it's liquid, it's not frozen. There's some heat in the water. Because when you breathe off a regulator, that compressed gas you breathe off a uh, reduction in pressure, it's what probably negative ten, negative twenty. That air pressure, it's uh, chilly. That, that, it's it's chilly. So uh, and it's going to get cold quick. You know, it doesn't take you three or four minutes in the dive where you've chilled down that tank and everything, and so you've got components which are well below freezing. So uh, so what they're trying to do here is to Keep the temperature up to a point to where it's not gonna freeze up or less likely to freeze up. So,
1: or you could just do a rebreather, and that way you got warm air the whole dive.
0: Yeah, cheaters. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a real diver.
1: <laughs> yeah, if we could afford them, we'd be changing our tune real
0: quick. Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. You, you always poo things you can't afford or have, like those Lamborghinis. I'm told that they're just a, a mess. To, See, I don't even have a desire for that. Rebreather, I'd take. Well, Lamborghini, what? what the, probably the tallest part of the car is about a foot and a half off the road. I, I'd be I'd kill myself. Yeah. I hope this looks cool because I can't see anything. Yeah, Poseidon regs, Dave uh, is saying. and I've, We hear a lot of great things about Poseidon. Oh. That's what I use on my deep
1: regs and my bailout.
0: Yeah. yeah. Poseidons are some good regs. And they're not a sponsor, so. That's true. Uh, and and for people doing cold water diving, uh, you want to get everything all serviced and maintained because that's the the important thing. Is it's it might be a cold water rated re- regulator, but if it's not being serviced, uh, it may not be up to optimal conditions. So that does it for scooping the news. Boy, we really ran that one too. What is the time? Eleven thirty. But I'll be lucky to get this under two hours. But uh, some good articles in there. Thank you, Mac. Those are some some nice ones. Some interesting things to see. Uh uh let's see do we want to talk about diving did anybody do any diving this last week Well Tuesday they
1: had the uh thankful Tuesday dive had four uh-huh. participants and that was at uh, Forest Beach in Pawpaw in spite of the rain and the inclement weather no lightning till they do So that go. one I know about other than that I think you got a boat dive ended
0: Yes I went out on Lake Michigan with a couple of a few other divers uh, we went out and dove the rock away. So uh, uh, we we left out of South Haven, where I was shocked at how, I mean, I know high water, and I've been in St. How- Haven when there's high water. And this is a level of high water above ridiculous high water. Uh, you know, In Michigan, almost every channel uh, out to the Great Lakes you know, you will have seawalls. When the top of the seawall is less than six inches above the water level, yep. and I'm not, I'm not talking the, then there was no wind blowing it in. That is the level of the water right now. Uh, there are houses underwater along the river, like uh, Jensen's, you know, Bob Jensen's, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the house he lives in. I'm pretty sure that bottom floor has six inches of water sitting in it all the time. And there were other houses along the river, you know, that people probably spent a significant amount of money to be that close to the water that uh, I'd be putting sandbags around it. If nothing for, if, if somebody goes crazy with a jet ski in the river, the wake is going to go, you know, hit your window. <laughs> I mean,
1: that's, that's a big concern. And they've actually had a couple of pictures in the Herald Palladium. The river down here is the jet skiers and people who are not observing the no wake zone. Oh, are yeah. Really screwing up the embankments.
0: Oh yeah. Cause not every bit of the river has a a seawall on it. Right. Uh, so I mean when you get awake it's going into the parks. <laughs> There's this is uh this is crazy high. Uh now I you know people have said well this is a 200 year or 400 year high. We don't know. You know, 200 years ago this could have been normal. We we may just don't know what normal is. So you know, you 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 don't own land, you re- literally just borrow it. And uh but you may and and you know on the coast you can make the global warming argument in Lake Michigan. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know that that really is the same deal. The cause here it's just more water coming in than going out, which doesn't seem to be a global warming thing. Uh Is kind of our problem. The watershed and the lake is uh filling up, and if we get like the article we had the earlier, we get another six inches, and I mean, can you imagine a St. Joe Pier where it's all underwater?
1: Well, the <laughs> you know the South Pier
0: pretty much is. Yeah, it's it's getting close, and there's parts of the pier that I consider the pier that are underwater quite a bit or wet. Yeah, yeah, they're damp.
1: Yeah, the the section down the middle that's elevated.
0: Yeah, that's the only
1: section that's sometime dry.
0: Yeah, and so, any uh, wave
1: action, it's not.
0: Yeah, so in South Haven, we went and launched at the uh, public marina, which you have to to pay for to get to the docks but we came in a way like all the way around the trailer park, uh, you know, staged the boat outside the park and then went in. But there's a, there's a road that right before the park where there's water up to it. I mean, there's, there's a lot of roads closed off. So you're not going to be able to get in and out of there like normal. So those roads are closed off and we were able to, uh, get in. I, I, you could probably, if you were brave enough, back the boat trailer down one of these roads and you'd, you'd be able to launch a boat. Um, uh, uh, launched out, uh, oh, the other thing you have to realize is, uh, you know, you've got drawbridges, which, you know, if you're a sailboat, you're waiting for the drawbridge boat to go up a normal motorboat. You don't have to, well, both the motorboats went under the drawbridges with inches to spare.
1: And that's where the antennas down and no big cap. Oh, oh yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is uh you've got a tonneau cover or, or not tonneau cover. What do they call that? I'll think of it later, but, uh, yeah, they, they, they were close. And uh, we were standing up making sure, you know, like telling her, you know, get ready to to back up real quick if we can't make it underneath. But we we made it out. A a lot of people on the piers, a lot of people on the beaches. uh, Not quite summer populations, but, you know, high for a uh, virus era population. Uh, We did see some people with masks, but uh, kind of your point, Mac, in South Haven, the only people I saw with masks were over, I would say, over 60. And most likely over seventy, honestly, but uh everybody else was mask free uh and then we went out we dove the rock away uh we got out there uh I was on the boat that was the the non uh uh preserved diver boat um and the other boat uh was the ones with the appropriate personnel for putting buoys into the water uh but we dove down visibility was crap i would say and uh, in relative crap it was like five feet uh going down the line on the surface the water temperature was maybe 60 ish it was still kind of chilly Uh, on the bottom i had 43 some people had 42 some had 44 so i was kind of splitting the difference but when you got to about 20 or 30 feet above the wreck i had opened up and i'd say we had about 20 25 feet of viz. so not too bad and Kurt and I were the first ones down in the bottom. Uh, the you know the the special train divers were doing their things. Kurt and I were doing our uh, our uh, just kind of looking around, see what we could see. And uh, visibility was good, except for every place we had been.
1: <laughs> so, so they're putting out the buoy, or they, uh, they, uh...
0: the 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 uh, the buoy is out. You know the uh, DNR divers got the buoy out in the water and. And stuff. They were on different boats, but uh, so the
1: crib, crib was uh, the out crib there? was
0: fine. Yep, the crib was fine. Uh, the buoy went out. They got it up. So there's a there's a buoy up. So both the Havana and the Rockaway now have buoys. So, uh, and you know the, everything they did went pretty much according to plan. You know, you've always got some challenges with things don't turn or things don't fit like they expect. But they got all those up. Uh, I saw only one goby on the wreck does that even seem possible huh i don't know where the gobies went but we did see five or six catfish i mean there were catfish everywhere underneath every board you know in the rockaway if you look down the center board there's always one or two catfish there was underneath one of the decks it was either a nine foot catfish or two catfish <laughs> i think it was two catfish but there's a tail coming out of one end and a head coming out of the other and. uh
1: you you realize that where we dived there for the uh, Turkey Day dives,
0: I have seen seven foot catfish there. These these weren't, but I I believe that's possible. Yeah, I I mean I know there are seven foot, but these weren't seven foot. These are these are two and two foot maybe, two and a half <laughs> maybe at the biggest. Uh, most of them probably yeah. Everything seems bigger underwater, but I'm going to say they were eighteen to twenty four inch catfish. But they didn't really care. But there wasn't the gobies because normally when you go dive wrecks, there's gobies everywhere. And as you move, they stir it up and it was yep. just us. <laughs> we were the only ones stirring stuff up. Uh, there wasn't a lot of, I didn't see a lot of fishing tackle on the wreck. There wasn't a lot of stuff on it, but uh, it was chilly. I was cold. I could have done a little bit longer dive, but uh, I probably underdressed for it. My I I dove a dry suit, suit, but I didn't have quite as heavy as undergarments is what I should have. Kurt said he got 70 feet on the bottom, which, which makes sense considering the water levels. Uh, there are some fresh boards exposed, which I was surprised with as much sand and erosion. I figured to be covered up, but you know, like all the time it changes. Some parts of the wreck were covered that weren't before, but there were some fresh boards exposed with no muscles on them, but all in all, a nice dive.
1: Now you can keep that up. You got wet. Let's keep wet.
0: Yeah. That's what I got to do. I got to keep going. Uh, I've, I've been, I've been mowing my yard with a push mower, you know, just trying to get the exercise in and I'm getting like 25,000 steps a day, push mowing. So I took Monday off and I, from work, I, that was a, I got to use some vacation time up. I took Saturday. I mowed. So Monday and Saturday I mowed and Sunday I did a dive. So pretty nice dive. Bird. And then I got to put my password in here because my screensaver kicked on rookie mistake. Here I go back again bimini top thank you karen that's what it is it's a bimini top uh do you have a safety story for the week well we've been going for two hours plus so we'll just save that for next week we'll, we'll say that for next week okay we'll go ahead and do that so once again I'd like to thank everybody who's listening thank you to all our supporters if you're joining the show please head on over to our website com and support us on patreon uh, we have links over to Patreon, and I'm sure if you go to Patreon and search for Scoob Obsessed, you could also find us that way. We're on Twitter, at Scoob Obsessed. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scoob Obsessed. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. Uh, you know, if, if Kevin was here, who he's getting ready for his honeymoon, so uh, he couldn't be here with us, but I, I know he wishes he could. Uh, he'd say support your librarians, which post-COVID. If they were know, open. If they were open. I think you support your librarians by uh, paying your late fees because you've probably got some. Actually, uh,
1: the libraries around here now have stopped collection on late fees. There is none of that.
0: Oh, wow. So sterilize your books, return them, and start and your research. The
1: millage support the millage for
0: Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, schools here, uh, our school is uh, going to be, and we're one of the best financial condition schools in the area, and they're running about a half million short this year. Budget Every runs. other
1: one is more than that.
0: Oh, I know. I've I've seen them, and so we're not cutting any staffing. Any teachers are just going to delay some projects. I say delay some projects, but we're building a whole new theater and athletic center, which is a good deal right now because you get a good deal in construction. Uh, so yeah, yeah, support what you can. Yeah, this is. I think we're going to have a rough year or so, and hopefully it comes back because a lot of times when things like this go away. Some things never come back, so we just have to hope things come back or figure you're out. We're going to watch
1: the malls disappear.
0: The malls have already been disappearing. The uh, Ben well, Harbor mall. They figured
1: ours. it was going to phase out in 10, 12 years. It is shot in the butt bad, big time.
0: Well, nobody's going to start a retail business and those who have retail businesses, I think are just calling it quits. You can't compete with the online retailers. Or if you're a business doing retail, you're also doing online, which is this it just makes sense. The tough thing with an online business is shipping. Uh, if you're a local business and you decide you're going to do shipping, everybody's conditioned to expecting Amazon shipping, and you can't do that. You, you know, UPS isn't going to give you those rates. FedEx doesn't give you those rates because you know the, they're they're cooking it into other things, membership fees, and other ways to cover you know that two day shipping all the time, and it uh, makes it tough for everybody else. So support your local dive shops, dive centers. Get in there. Uh cuz you know Amazon's not going to do your air fills. I'm that's my prediction is, you know, in the next 5 to 10 years we're not going to see an Amazon air fill station. Yeah. So are you ready for that time of the show? Yes I'm re. And I'm very afraid I've done this joke, but we'll just pretend like I haven't. So, and this one was provided to us by somebody who's not here on the program tonight, so We can blame them crap what did i just do i lost my article holy crap where'd it go there it is okay 15 year old amish boy and his father were in the mall they're amazed by almost everything they saw but especially by two shiny silver walls that could move apart and then slide back together again the boy asks what is this father the father never having seen an elevator responded son i've never seen anything like this in my life i don't know what it is While the boy and his father were watching with amazement, a fat old lady in a motorized cart moved up to the moving walls and pressed a button. The walls opened and the lady rolled between into a small room. The walls closed and the boy and his father watched the small numbers in the wall light up sequentially. They continued to watch until they reached the last number and then the numbers began to light in reverse order. The doors opened and a young blonde stepped out. The father, not taking his eyes off the young woman, said quietly to his son, Go get your mother.
1: I still like that one. That doesn't get old.
0: (laughs) Until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And we'll get Craig out of here.